Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, CFA and Senior Vice President at Harbor Capital Advisors, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. On this inaugural episode of the Guardians of Finance podcast, we talk with Ben Makovic, partner and managing member of Strategic Value Bank Partners. We talk about Ben growing up in Cleveland, how he got into the world of buy-side investing, and some of his mentors along the way. We also discuss some of his personal interests, including his most memorable Cleveland sports moments, and also his favorite hidden gem establishment in Cleveland. We welcome you to the podcast and, and sit back, relax, and get to know this member of the Cleveland investment community a little bit better. We welcome our guest today, Ben Makovic. Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Sure. Let's jump right in. Ben, take us a little bit through your upbringing. You're a Cleveland native and where you grew up, kind of your pre-professional story, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. And first off, congrats on the new podcast. I think it's an awesome idea. I think the Cleveland investment community is really vibrant. And I think doing like stuff like this to bring everybody together and let people know what other folks are working on is a, is a great idea. So congrats for doing it and happy to be a part of it. So my, my backstory is I was born in Northeast Ohio, grew up predominantly in Willoughby, which is, I'd say, a middle-class suburb about 20 minutes east of Cleveland. And for 70% of my childhood, we lived in, in a house that had one bathroom, five people, one bathroom. And it always seemed like money was a source of tension. And I think from a young age, I saw that financial security was an important goal to achieve. And I think that kind of subconsciously created the underpinnings for you know, my investment philosophy and just how things have evolved from here, which is rule number one, don't lose money. You know, rule number two, don't forget rule number one. It, the math behind losing money is so tough. If you're down 50%, you have to be up 100% just to break even. And so I think... Everything I've done has been basically about trying not to lose money and trying to worry about the downside. And we can talk about what kind of philosophy that would draw someone towards as it comes to investing. So growing up, went to public schools. And when it came time for college, I picked Kent State because they offered me a scholarship and they also had a good architecture program. And at the time, I thought I wanted to be an architect. So it's the fall of 1999 and I'm you know, starting college. and Within like weeks, not months, like weeks, I realized, A, I didn't like architecture, and B, I wasn't very good at it. But you know, that was the path I was on and found myself at a crossroad. And so I'm still half-heartedly doing these architecture classes, even though I know I'm definitely not going in that route. My mother was a teacher, so I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll be a teacher. But I was starting to learn about investing. So this was the fall of 1999. The internet bubble was in full swing, and public media and public consciousness was wrapped up in the stock market. So you didn't have to really venture far to 
kind of hear about the stock market, you know, stories in newspapers, magazines, on the TV, whatever. So it, in fall of 99, this is sort of the first time I've accessed a high-speed internet and start going to finance websites. And they had these really crude, primitive message boards back then that are they're kind of like Reddit today, but this was, I guess, 22 years ago. And so started like getting interested in what was going on in the market, but was not investing. And no one in my family had ever bought a stock before, but I was starting to get intrigued by this. And I remember Bert Wolstein was a really neat Cleveland guy who started DDR, which is, I think is a still a publicly traded REIT. And he was on campus at Kent giving a talk. And I went up afterwards. I don't know why. I didn't know him and introduced myself and said, hey, I'm in this architecture program. It's definitely not going to work out. I think maybe I'll be a teacher, but then I'll like invest on the weekends and during the summer, because teachers don't have to work in the summer. And he just looked at me and said, you know, the world is so competitive. You can only be great at one thing. So you got to just figure out what you want to be great at and do it. And it really kind of crystallized that, okay, if I'm interested in this, let's go down that path and see where it goes. So I enrolled in the business school, started taking finance courses, loved it, and was able to get an internship at Merrill Lynch, which had an office here in town that was doing sales and trading. And they were covering hedge funds in New York. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I was picking up stuff, just sort of being in that environment, whether it was sending analyst notes to guys at funds or earnings models or the different things that you do on the sales and trading desk. And so I do that internship. I'm making $250 a month, which was like about covering the gas to get there and back because this, this was about an hour from Kent where this office was. So I'm a few months in, the internship's about to wrap up and the most junior person on this team leaves the firm. So now they're down a person and they offered, and I'm still in college, they offered me a full-time job as I'm about to start my senior year. And the pay that they were offering was $1,500 a month. And this is back in 2003, but that still wasn't a lot of money back then, but it seemed like so much money. I, I felt like Jay Gatsby making $1,500 a month but I still had to finish school. And so I, I thought, boy, this is a great opportunity. I'm really intrigued by the market and investing and the buy side and the sell side and how it all works. So I took it and I rearranged my course schedule. So I went to school at night and took summer classes. And so this job, if anyone's ever worked in sales and trading knows, you know, your day starts well before the market opens. There's something called a morning call, which all the research analysts get. It's called a squawk box. If you ever wondered why CNBC had a show called Squawk Box because it was literally this like box and it would be in the office and it would just start talking every time an analyst got on, like in the middle of the day. I don't think that exists anymore, but there would be a morning call that started at 7 a.m. and I'd have to leave Kent at like 6 a.m. This is my senior year of college. So I'd have to wake up at about 5.30 and I was living with a bunch of guys in a, in a big house and they were like coming home at 5.30 from whatever they were doing. And I was getting ready to, to go to work at 5.30. And so I did that for my senior year and got to develop relationships with some of these guys working at hedge funds in New York. And the more I did it, the more interesting I thought their work was on the buy side rather than what I was doing on the sell side. And so I wanted to figure out a way to make that jump over to the buy side because I thought, boy, that, that's a lot more interesting. It seems a lot more exciting. And so I finished up school at Kent and I start looking for jobs. And I fly out to Southern California and interview with two firms. One is on the sell side, doing sales and trading again, because I think they like that I had a background in this. 
and the other was on the buy side. And the sales and trading job paid sixty-five thousand, and the buy side job is First American Capital Management, kind of a large cap core manager, and they were offering fifty-five thousand. And I told my mom these offers, and she was like, "Oh well, that's great. You're going to make sixty-five thousand." And I'm like, "No, no, I, I think I'm going to take the other one." And she couldn't. She's like, what? Why would you do that? And I said, well, I, I think if I get on the buy side, I'm going to learn more. I'm going to, this is really what I want to do with my career. I think it's a better return on time to get $10,000 less now, but set myself up for what I really want to do longer term. And I don't know, you know if any young people are going to listen to this or not, but that's a piece of advice I've always given when I talk to people starting off in this business is your first couple jobs are not going to make you rich no matter what you do. So you should really go somewhere where you think you can learn the most and it's going to create the right trajectory for you and help you accomplish what you ultimately want to accomplish 10 years out, 15 years out, 20 years out. So I accepted the job. It was First American Capital Management in Newport Beach, California, moved out to Newport. You know, didn't know anybody in Newport or in California at all. You work market hours in California. So I had kind of a weird existence where you know, you're getting up really early, and but learned an awful lot at that job and, and really saw what it was like to be on the buy side and, and what fundamental analysis at the institutional investor level looks like. And as I got to know the different folks and the different analysts and the PM and stuff, it seemed like almost all of them had gone to business school. And I thought, boy, this might be a way to really jumpstart my career and, and kind of accelerate my trajectory is if I go to business school. And this was back in 2004. And so I started applying to a handful of business school programs got into Cornell and the University of Virginia, the Darden School. And at the time I was in California, I was living with a guy who had graduated from UVA. And he said, oh, Cornell's freezing. Charlottesville is the greatest place on earth. You got to go to Charlottesville. You got to go to UVA. So I went there, visited, and really said, this is great. This is perfect. So enrolled at Darden. I think I was the youngest guy in the class. So you know, this is still only like a year or two out of college. Got involved in the investment club, and just try to soak up as much as possible. And worked really hard that first year to get an internship on the buy side with a hedge fund. And at the end of the day, I had two offers. One was a multi-billion dollar fund in Boston, where I would have been just one industry. So aerospace tech, whatever it was, I was just going to focus on one industry, which is how a lot of funds are structured. The other one was a $250 million fund that was based in Charlottesville called Rivana Capital. And everyone there was a generalist. So you could really be unconstrained and look at different industries and special situations. And as long as it was equity, it was up for grabs. And I really, really liked the guys there. And it was similar to my decision coming out of college. The big fund in Boston paid more, but I thought I would learn more with the guys in Charlottesville, being a generalist and working with that team. So I did my internship there in Charlottesville, worked hard all summer long and was able to get one idea into the portfolio. So they, you know, all the things I'm pitching, they actually did one of them. And it was Chiquita Brands, which, you know, Chiquita Bananas and fruit and produce and stuff. And it was beaten up, kind of a hated stock. And I had done a lot of research. And I thought it's a very low margin business. And so it's huge revenue, very tight margins. If you make just like the smallest improvement in margins, the earnings per share explode just because of all the operating leverage in the business. And I thought they were at an inflection point. And so I convinced the PM to put the name in the book. And 
they reported earnings. It was the last week of my internship. So this would have been like mid-August of 2006. And I don't know if luck or good or what, but they beat earnings, raised their guidance, and the stock was up 25% one day. And it couldn't have come at a better time because this was right at the end of the internship. And maybe they would have made me the offer no matter how it worked out, but they made me an offer to join the firm after graduation. So I have that in my back pocket and a funny Chiquita brand story. So my second year of business school, Mad Money with Jim Cramer, the, the thing on CNBC, comes to campus and they broadcast an episode at Darden, at the Darden Business School. So Chiquita is still in the portfolio at Rivanna Capital and I'm running a, a fund for the Student Investment Club and I have it in the portfolio there. So I'm like all in on Chiquita Brands. And I'm like, I'll be clever. I'll, because I'll, Jim Cramer was going to do a QA. I'm going to ask him what he thinks about Chiquita Brands. And you know, he's going to say, he's going to hit that buy, buy, buy button and you know, stock's going to go up the next day and I'm going to look super smart in front of all my classmates. So he does his whole shtick and they're filming a, an actual episode on ground and they do Q&A and I get up to the microphone and I had a banana in my pocket and I said, Jim, am I bananas or is Chiquita an appealing stock? And I start peeling the banana and I eat it and he just stares at me and he's just silent. And he just like shakes his head and hits the sell, sell, sell button. He's like, that's a crappy company. That stock's going straight down. And it was like very public shaming for what had been my golden stock. But as I wrap up business school and and start my job at Rivanna Capital, this is the time where I think my investment philosophy really begins to mature and crystallize. And, you know, I'd say two people that really shape that. And I'm very lucky just lucky. I think there's no other way to describe it, to have been exposed to them. And the first one's Julian Robertson, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but he was the founder of Tiger Capital Management, really, yeah, I would consider like the godfather of long short investing. And he has a connection to UVA. And so he would come on grounds and, and give talks and stuff. And I actually got to know his son, Alex, and develop a relationship with them that I'll go into a little bit later. But you know, Julian, from him, I learned like this idea of fundamental analysis tenacious research, the idea of gaining an edge. So do I have a superior understanding? Do I know more about this particular company or investment than the market? Or do I have an analytical edge that I'm putting the pieces together better than the market? And I think that tiger, tiger cub type of idea about how to do fundamental analysis and truly understanding the drivers of a business and the value of the business, you know, I'd say really came from him and then was reaffirmed at Rivanna Capital, because that's the kind of analysis and investment we were doing. And then the other person that I would say really shaped my investment philosophy was Paul Tudor Jones, really well-known macro trader, also a University of Virginia alum. And I think the coolest guy in the world, like he would come down to speak to classes and I would just soak it up. And from him, I really learned the importance of controlling risk and how you have to control risk and this idea of getting the odds in your favor. And if I would boil down my whole investment philosophy, the one word would be asymmetry, risk reward asymmetry, that I can lose a dollar if I'm wrong, but I'm going to make $5 if I'm right. And if I do that day in and day out across a whole portfolio for 40 years, I'm going to have a a good investment track record. And I think that's something that he, he would talk about, the risk reward, the upside downside. It was just really, really instrumental in sort of developing how I think about investing and upside versus downside. And the other thing I learned from Paul is being comfortable being wrong. 
And so he talks all the time about as long as you control the downside, you can be wrong a lot. You just have to avoid those really big drawdowns. And whether you're investing in banks like we do now or equities or whatever asset class you're in, these concepts translate perfectly. Like you can be wrong as long as you control the downside. And when you're right, you need to be making multiples of what you lose when you're when you're wrong. Because even the best investors in the world are probably only right 55 or 60% of the time. It's just it's a very competitive game and the market's relatively efficient. So I think that idea of asymmetry is really, really important. That was kind of my background. And then I'm happy to talk about professional experiences along the way or wherever you think would be interesting. Yeah, sure. No, that was fantastic. One question that I thought of when you were kind of going through that is I feel like maybe a similar story to many people in Northeast Ohio with just this, I think we're known for kind of that work ethic, that kind of getting after it and, you know, your story of growing up in a one bathroom house that kind of, I think, resonates with a lot of people. Where does your work ethic come from or where was that born early in your life? Where did you get that from? You know, if you want to be great at anything, you got to get the reps and there really are no shortcuts, particularly in this business. You can read about the Great Depression or the financial crisis, but if you haven't lived through these things, it's really tough to know how you're going to respond and what you're going to do. And so I think you just have to get reps in this business. And I think it's really important that people are passionate about what they do. And I forget who told me this, but if you don't really love what you do, you're not going to have the stamina to get all the reps in to be great. And so work ethic, I think, is also a product of like, enjoying what you're doing. There's probably, I could do this job 70 hours a week and it's no big deal. And there's probably certain jobs out there that if I did them 30 hours a week, I'd I'd hate them. So I think it's aligning what you like with what you're doing. So right now you're with Strategic Value Bank Partners. You're a founder of that firm. So take us through, you're at the hedge fund, you're in Charlottesville, Virginia. How did you make it back to Cleveland and then start Strategic Value Bank Partners? And what was that road like? So I I was at Rivana Capital for about five years after business school. And I I learned a ton. They were unbelievable mentors. They were patient. And we went through the financial crisis together. We went through some wild, wild stuff. And it was always just a very professional, very focused environment. And and I'm just forever grateful to Jack Sorensen and Craig Kohlberg, who were the two founders of that firm. And I was there for five years, and we had a, we had a good run. We actually made money in 2008. We were one of the few hedge funds that really did hedge the book. And we, we didn't do the big short trade, but we kind of saw what was coming. And, and we did have a, a big short in the banking sector and sort of that subprime mess that was going on. But ultimately, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, and I wanted to, to come back home to Cleveland. And as I was getting ready to spin out of there and, and make that move, I considered, okay, maybe do I go to New York or DC is pretty close to Charlottesville. Do I go to DC? And I kind of thought about that decision. And, and one, I didn't have a very big balance sheet at the time. So cost of living was very important. So Cleveland is a cheaper market to do something entrepreneurial, to start something than in New York or DC. And two, I thought it'd be, I thought to do something meaningful in a place that I care about would just be a lot more exciting. And so ultimately decided to move back to Cleveland and start Cavalier Capital, which was a long, short hedge fund, fundamental equity kind of value investing, similar to 
what we were doing at Rivana Capital and similar to what Julian had done at Tiger Investing, you you try to find undervalued stocks and go long and you try to find frauds or fads or companies in terminal decline or you know, whatever it is and, and short those and try to remove the beta from the market and a traditional long short hedge fund that really hasn't existed in the last couple of years. But so I moved to Cleveland in 2012, got the fund up and running in 2013. At the time I was 32. And I think that was probably too young. And that was probably being a little naive at the time. Very hard to raise money as a 32-year-old. <laughs> it's just the reality of it. I had 55 investors and I made the minimum investment $100,000. So I was running a $5.5 million fund. And that generated about $55,000 of revenue with a 1% management fee. And it cost more than $55,000 to run a hedge fund. And so I was deeply subsidizing this new launch. But I had some really, really good investors who I thought, you know, were going to be able to grow with me, and and they would have. I can get into what ultimately happened, but that was the idea. Though, even though it was small, as long as I perform and, and do what I say I'm going to do, that we can scale this up. You know, for example, I mentioned Julian Robertson. I became friends with his son Alex, and they became they were investors, day one investors in Kepler Capital. So there's what's called Tiger Cubs. Are you familiar with that term? I'm not. No. So it's it's hedge funds that spun out of Tiger. And then there's Tiger Grand Cubs, which are hedge funds that spin out of the Tiger Cubs. So I think Cavalier Capital is like a tiger bastard. We kind of snuck in the back door. <laughs> so we, we get that off the ground. I set up shop at the City Club building, which is where the CFA Society historically has held its, some of its meetings. And for those who don't know, and you'd have no reason to go up there, but that building gets worse and worse the higher up you go. So the nicest floor is where we are, that second floor. And I was on the top floor. So it was literally the worst floor in the building. And guys from the street would come in and use the bathroom and smoke cigarettes in the hallway. It was a wild situation, but that's all I could afford was the top floor of the, the city club building. And so for the first year running the fund, the returns were reasonable, basically kind of what I was expecting. But scaling up from $5.5 million is just a very, very tough prospect. And so at the end of year one, I was pretty much out of money, but I had a house in Virginia. So I sold the house in Virginia and basically poured all that money back into the business to keep it going in year two and keep trudging on. But again, it, it's hard to raise money you know, as a young kind of one-man shop. You know, there's a funny story from this time. So I think when you're first starting off, most of your investors are people you know, you have some connection to. Almost all your investors really are people you have some connection to. And so I think there's a tendency to really internalize the performance, the fund's performance. And so your emotions probably are not where they should be in terms of balance in that kind of like, I personally know all my investors and my track record is six months. You know, it's like everything feels like it's either the end of the world or the greatest thing ever. So I was, I was in Charlottesville for a, a friend was getting married. It was a Friday. And do you know Ted Weschler? He's like Warren Buffett's number two guy who runs the investment portfolio at Berkshire. Yep. So, so Ted used to run a hedge fund in Charlottesville. So I'm down there. And I was meeting with him Friday morning. The wedding's like Friday night. And my biggest position was like 10% of the fund reported terrible earnings. And the stock was down like 25% pre-market. And I'm like, holy shit, like this is just going to be an awful day. Like this is the end of me. And so I probably met with Ted at nine. Like I think the market hasn't opened, but I've seen the pre-market trading. I know it's going to be bad. And so I'm telling him this. I'm like, oh, how did you deal with the volatility? Because he used to run 
I think he'd have like five or six names in his whole portfolio. He ran a hyper concentrated portfolio. And I was like, I've got a 10% position. I think it's going to be down 20 or 25%. And he goes, you know what? When I started, like the first six months, I had a 35% position and it was down 50%. (laughs) So your 10% down 25 is nothing. (laughs) And it wasn't like in a mean way, but it was just like, hey, have a bigger horizon here. Like, don't get so focused on the day-to-day stuff. And I thought if that happened to him right out of the gate and he still created the track record he created over a 10 or 15 year period, however long it was, you know, you cannot get bogged down in the day-to-day emotional swing of what goes on in this business. But it, was a, it also highlights an important point of, of having mentors in this business. And I think that's just really, really important. You know, as younger people starting off, you find people like that who have the perspective, who have the experience, who can talk you off the ledge when, you know, you're in a, a situation where you're not quite sure what to do, or you had a big, big loss, or you're never as smart as your best ideas. You're never as dumb as your worst ideas. Emotional balance is really, really important in this business. So at the end of the year, too, I ran out of money and I had no more houses to sell. And so I said, all right, this is not going to get escape velocity. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And one of my investors was Richard Barone, who founded Encora. And he goes having lunch with Richard at Giovanni's on the east side. And I was basically giving him the, the sob song, like, you know, I'm out of money. I don't know what I'm going to do. And at the time he was launching, a, you kind of getting his family office up and running. He said, well, I've got this office space. Why don't you come out here? You're not going to have the cash burn. You know, we can work on some investment stuff together. And then through him, I was introduced to my partner, Umberto Fidelli, and was working on some investment stuff with him. And then through Umberto, I was introduced to our third party partner, Marty Adams, who used to be the CEO of Sky Bank, which was a big bank, publicly traded bank in Ohio for about 30 years. At Cavalier Capital, I was investing in a lot of small cap banks, but as I said, doing it at a subscale level. And Umberto had been personally investing in a lot of banks. And Marty had been bank CEO for a long time and, and now was sitting on some bank boards, helping some banks with consulting and, and raising capital. And so we got this idea of we're all investing in banks and we're all doing it on kind of a subscale level without any real infrastructure support, why don't we combine forces, we'll create a vehicle, and we'll open up to outside capital, we'll hire a team, we'll build an infrastructure, and we'll invest in community banks. And I think it's a really interesting space, and we can get into some of the reasons kind of why we exist and what our competitive advantages are. But that was the genesis of what Strategic Value Bank Partners was. When I first met Marty, we'd met at a Panera Bread in Youngstown, Ohio for lunch. Like, you know, that was the beginning of the thing. It's the two of us sitting around a Panera Bread table with a bag of chips talking about, you know, it could this be a real business? Is this something we should do? And I think everybody was intrigued by it. And we said, all right, if we can raise 40 million bucks, this will be worthwhile and let's give it a shot. We can hire an analyst and, and kind of go from there. And so we had, I think, two lunches about a week apart in Berto Fidelli's office and had a bunch of local business people and investors hear what we were going to do. And we raised all that money in, in about seven days across two lunches. And we said, okay, well, let's see where this goes. And that was, I guess, 2015. So we're, we're now in our eighth year of investing in community banks with strategic value bank partners. We now have four funds. We have one hedge fund. We have three private equity vehicles. 
AUM is about $500 million. And we try to look for, we've got a pretty simple model. We look for banks that are in good markets with good management teams and good underwriting. And if we can find all three of those, we think the odds are in our favor that it'll end up being a good investment for us. You know, when you started Strategic Value Bank Partners, you raised money right away, which probably a, a pretty encouraging sign. Was there kind of an aha or, or a we made it moment a year, two years or whatever that was down the road that you're like, wow, we've come a long way since Panera Bread and this is this is really something? We're eight years into it and I still don't feel like we've had that we've made it. I think we're still trying to be nimble and working hard. And when I look back, like, wow, we, we did accomplish a lot. But I guess it never really felt like here we are. The reality is we are a relatively big fish in a small pond. There are a lot of regulations about bank ownership where the Federal Reserve typically restricts ownership in banks to 10%. And I think it comes out of like prohibition days. I think the mob would control the bank and launder money through it. And so the Federal Reserve, when it was created, really made it very difficult for different organizations and entities to take control of banks. And so what that did is it really kept private equity away from the community bank industry. And so Carlisle, KKR, Blackstone never got involved in banking because they couldn't just buy 100% of a bank without themselves being a bank, which they would not want to do. So it has made a relatively inefficient part of the market where there's only a few institutional caliber players like us with our kind of balance sheet who can invest in community banks, which is what we do. And so you know, a lot of times the investors of community banks are just local people in the in the community. Transitioning to personal life and your passions there, outside of dad jokes, which it seems like you're passionate about from the Chiquita Banana story, what other things in your personal life are you really passionate about? Interests, hobbies? Tell us a little about that side of your life. Well, I probably don't have as much balance as I would like. I think investing is kind of a hobby for me. And so it, it really is pretty consuming, reading, thinking about investing kind of on the weekends and at night. And it might sound kind of lame, but I really do love it. I started a book club in town, which which we're happy to have you as a, a member of, with some other local professional investors and some CFA society members. And so we get together and read investing books or business books, drink wine, talk about the markets. I try to stay you know, kind of relatively active or fit to varying degrees of success. Being involved with family is important. Faith is important. But you know, I could probably do better on fitness, faith, and family. But those are kind of what I do outside of thinking about the markets. So you're ready for the final questions, a little rapid fire segment, maybe a few of those in quick fire and see what we can come up with. Sure thing. All right. You just mentioned it, but best book recommendation right now. Howard Marks is the most important thing is a very good fundamental book. I think all investors should read in terms of thinking about risk reward. There are no bad assets. There's just bad prices that you can pay. And there are no inherently bad risks. There's just risk that's mispriced. I think some of those ideas are really sort of instrumental to my view. We do a junior analyst reading seminar here at our firm. And so every time we have a new junior analyst, I give them a list of 10 books and we grab lunch and the junior analyst will present on it. So that, that was our most recent book. Maybe that's why it's top of mind. Most memorable Cleveland sports moment. Oh, that's an easy one. 
I was at game seven in Oakland when the Cavaliers beat the Golden State Warriors. Incredible. That, that crowd was probably 95% Golden State fans. Actually, they're playing tonight. I'm, I'm going to the game tonight. Golden State's going to be in town. But yeah, that, that was really cool to see a Cleveland team win a championship in person. And the flip side of that, I feel like we all have to have these living in Northeast Ohio, most disappointing Cleveland sports moment. Oh, man. I kind of hate these negative. I guess they're fun to talk about, but it, it seems like there's way more emphasis on the negative. I just watched the Believe Land documentary this week, actually, just randomly. And you know, they talk about the fumble and the drive. They were like losing in those games. Like those weren't necessarily like that <laughs> crazy of outcomes, I guess. And they weren't like the Super Bowl either. So I, I don't know. I feel like that kind of stuff's overblown. But one that is not overblown, and again, I was there in person, was Game 7 of the 2016 World Series against the Cubs. And actually, you're a Chicago guy, aren't you? I lived in Chicago for 10 years. So I was in Chicago at the time, yes. Okay. So yeah, that, that was a tough one. In Chicago, I'll tell you, the mood was opposite of that. But I don't like to brag about that one to, to, to many people <laughs> around here. But I digress. Last question. Favorite thing to do in Cleveland that maybe a lot of people don't know about? Music, sports, metro, something along those lines. That is something that you you enjoy doing. Maybe restaurant. Yeah. Well, my favorite thing to do in Cleveland is to sit in the backyard and smoke a cigar with the dog. <laughs> but that's not really open to the public. <laughs> there is a very bizarre institution frozen in time on the east side, near east side, called the Schwitz. And there's no sign, there's no website. All I can say is that it is a unbelievable experience. And that's something that probably most people don't know about. It has not changed in 100 years. And I think that's what people love about it. That's great. I do actually know the term. I, I can't say I've ever been to the Schwitz in Cleveland. I know the term because of a, a friend that had a sign above a sauna in his house that I went to and said, hey, what, what does the Schwitz mean? And so I do know what it means. And it's on my list to get to in Cleveland. So that sounds like a great suggestion. Well, I put a group together called the Steam Team and we go a couple of times each winter. So I'll, <laughs> I'll make sure you're invited to the next one. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Well, Ben, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It was great talking with you. Awesome stories. And we'll see you at some CFA events. Sounds great. Congrats with the podcast. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.